Excellent. Um, but in any case, it's good to be with you. I want to start tonight. It's getting a little jumpy. <laughs> but I want to start tonight with a question, which you may hear reverberating around the room really loudly here in a second. We'll see. The question is: the question is, what is the meaning of a thing? How do we know what the meaning of a thing is? I'm the one St. John student in the room is like dying laughing because back at school. How do we know what the meaning of a thing is? And what if the meaning of a thing changes? And what if we change? I know that's super vague even for, for me, so let's make it a little more concrete, right? Object lesson time. Should we consider a wedding ring? If you have one, I actually want to encourage you to take it off and look at it if it is something that you can take off. Like, there are seasons where mine is not something I can take off. This is mine. This is my wedding ring. If you can't see it from where you're sitting, it's a gold band. Um, it's plain. It's, like, maybe a bit thicker than average. When I ordered this ring some 19 years ago, I told the jeweler that I wanted one that looked like the one ring from Lord of the Rings. And this is, like, what they, they came up with. On the inside of it, <laughs> on the inside of it, there's a there's an inscription that says "I love you forever," and it has my anniversary in it. It's a pretty simple object, in the scheme of things, it's a pretty common object. But what does it mean? What does this thing mean? I've officiated a handful of weddings at this point in my pastoral career, and and oftentimes in a wedding, the script calls. For the officiant, it's me, to answer a version of this question, to say something about what a wedding band means. And usually what you say is that it's a circle, and that it, a circle symbolizes this, like, the continuity of your love, that it has no beginning, no end, and it symbolizes that kind of constancy of your connection. But is that what it always means? Consider what an object even like this one might mean to somebody who is not married, but who longs to be. What do they see in a wedding ring? Consider what it might mean to somebody who is at the start of their marriage. Or what it might mean to someone whose marriage is over. What does it mean to a person who is divorced? To a person who has been widowed? What does it mean to a person who has worn a different ring before? It's one object, and it's a pretty simple object at that, but does it mean only one thing? Does it mean any one thing forever? I bring this up because tonight we're starting a new series that, that's going to run inter intermittently throughout the rest of our year. We tried this practice last year with a series on the Psalms, and we talked about various examples of Psalms in the week's that would come in between our other sort of more major series for the year. And as a preaching team last year, we really like, loved how this experiment worked, and it, and it gave us both these brief kind of breaks in between the big lessons of the year, and it also kind of created this lovely through line throughout the year as well to keep us connected to our annual theme. And so we're trying the same kind of thing again this year, but this time not discussing various psalms, but instead discussing selected parables. From the teachings of Jesus. The series, predictably, is called Parables. And this week I want to start, I want to start by trying to dig as deeply as we can into a fundamental question of Jesus' approach to ministry. 
It's one that, that has bothered me most of my life. And the, the question is this, why doesn't Jesus simply say what he means? In the brief time in which God walked this earth in the physical body of a man and spoke in the plain language of a group of people, why didn't he choose to lay out the secrets of God, the secrets of life, more clearly? Why did he speak in stories instead of doctrines? We spent 2,000 years trying to make doctrines from those stories. He couldn't just cut us to the chase, right? But to answer that, I think we need to actually keep something like this wedding band in mind. Because I think we need to consider whether the clarity that we are often seeking, the certainty that we are often seeking, I think we need to consider if that's as helpful when we get it as we imagine it's going to be. Or if the harder truth, maybe the deeper truth, is that meaning isn't something we hold as much as it is something that we experience. And if real learning, learning about the world, learning about God, learning even about ourselves, is a process of knowing a thing more rather than knowing more things. To center on a specific, specific example this week, we're going to look at what I am half-jokingly referring to as the first parable of Jesus, which is the parable of the sower. And I'm calling it the first because it is the first one to appear in the Gospel of Mark, which we are fairly confident is the first Gospel account of Jesus' life to be written. The timeline of Mark's Gospel, which as a total aside here, is actually uh, going to be the subject of our next full series, which is going to begin next Saturday on the Gospel of Mark. But nonetheless, the timeline of Mark's Gospel is, is pretty clearly a tool that the author is using to organize Jesus' ministry rather than a strict representation of the historical order in which the historical Jesus did things. So it's a leap, if we know that much, then it's a leap to say that the parable, parable of the sower was, in historical fact, the first parable that Jesus told. But even so, even so, the parable of the sower has another distinctive, which I think makes it a good place for us to start, and it is that it is also the only parable Jesus ever unpacks and explains for his disciples. It's the only one where we get to see the answers in the back of the book. So we should get to it. The context here is that Jesus has begun traveling around the northern region of Israel, which is known as Galilee. And while he's been traveling around, he's been performing various miracles. Specifically, he's been casting out demons, and he's been healing the sick. And in response to these wonders, as people were hearing about them, townspeople had begun kind of forming these crowds around him and swarming him and, and expressing interest, not just in the miracles he can do, but who he is and, and what it is that he might have to say to them. And then in Mark chapter 4, he begins to talk to them in particular about the coming kingdom of God. And he starts all of this off by saying this. He says, listen. Farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew.
grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. On the surface, it's a story that the people in this rural part of Judea could easily understand, at least the facts of, right? They knew from, or they know from experience, that not every seed that a farmer scatters is going to eventually lead to a plant. Animals eat them, or the seeds land in places that are infertile, or they wither, the conditions for growth aren't right. And the people were also capable of working with this this story as a kind of analogy. Sowing seeds, they could understand, is like what Jesus is doing. Sowing seeds is like what God has done. Not everybody is going to take root in Jesus' teaching, and not everyone is going to have a secure place in God's kingdom. But what makes the comparison frustrating, and what makes the comparison more than just an analogy, is the uncertainty about why. A farmer scatters seed because he only has so much time, and he can only be so diligent in his planting. But couldn't God be more careful? Couldn't God be more purposeful? A bird eats a seed because the bird is hungry. And a bird also goes on to serve an important part in an ecosystem, right? But who are the birds that eat the seeds that God plants? Can God not stop them? The story seems to baffle at least the disciples. And so later, they asked Jesus about it, and Jesus says this to them. He says, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. Still others, I'm sorry, I missed a verse there. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce crops, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. <laughs> I mean, it's only 5.57, Sarah, but I feel like we're done, right? Like, that solves it. We don't actually hear the disciples' response, but it's notable that we do have this memory of their conversation recorded here in the story of Jesus' ministry. So let's ask ourselves, what can we make of it? What can we make of it? I'm going contend that there are two rules we can kind of draw from all this about how we read parables. And the first rule is this. The first rule for reading a parable is to accept Jesus' challenge to have ears to hear. There are a few verses between the parable and Jesus' explanation. If you were looking in a, in a physical Bible, you would have noticed this. There are a few verses in between these two parts that we've already read. And I cut them from the conversation here because they're complex and because they can lead us down a certain rabbit trail. 
But the heart of those verses in between is that Jesus is here to help us recenter our perspectives from fixating on the kind of world that God, from fixating on ourselves to fixating on the kind of world that God intends for this world that we're living in to become. We can call this a kingdom mindset if we want. The point is that Jesus is bringing God's kingdom here in a tangible and in a personal way. And the parables exist at this intersection on the way we see the world and the way that God wants us to see the world. So when we read or when we hear a parable, we have to shift our perspective then from how this relates to us to how this reveals God's heart. And this is tough for us, I think, as Christians, because so often we sit through times of teaching like this one with a single purpose in mind, and that purpose is, preacher, you better tell me something that matters to me. It can convict me, it can encourage me, it can reinforce something that I already believe, but you better make it relate. But I think the parables push on that agenda. I think the parables ask us to move from a focus on ourselves and on our experiences to a new focus on who God is and what God is up to in the world. It's not that a self-focus is always bad. I hope that all of us are finding deeper and more challenging relationships with God through church. I hope that that's happening for you. But we aren't the most important thing here, either. God is working to redeem this whole thing. The big picture. He's working to redeem the entirety of his creation. And parables, I think, are meant to help us shift our focus from what we know to what God is revealing. But to do that, I think we need what that verse calls ears to hear. In the case of this parable, what God is revealing, according to Jesus, is that the seed of his word has spread much further than Jesus' listeners, which includes the authorities from the synagogues might have expected it to be so. Also, the story reveals that those seeds are not guaranteed to take any meaningful root. They're not guaranteed to endure. Notably, even seeds that are planted in the path are at risk, which is a troubling thing to hear, I think. In this case, the path is so well-worn, right, that they're easy pickings for the birds. And one is left to ponder and what that might mean in the context of Jesus' already building tensions with the Pharisees. What does it mean that the seeds in the path are easy to pick? The parable also reveals that there is no danger here to the ultimate harvest. The seeds which take healthy root are going to produce in an abundance. And the kingdom is going to come no matter how many seeds get lost. What the parable leaves open, though, the mystery of it, is how the farmer feels about any of this. Unless, of course, the listeners with ears to hear were looking for how their experience can inform the lesson rather than only how the lesson might matter to them, can 
consider how they feel when, when they are the farmer? Do they fret over every lost seed? Or is their eye only on the eventual harvest? I don't see all that to provoke a heresy, which some of you might be thinking I've just done. There will be parables to come which emphasize how much differently God sees the results of his labor when compared to how we tend to see the results of our own labor. Seeds are going to get their fair shake here before all of this is done. But Jesus' explanation, the one he gave to his disciples, I think still leaves a lot of room for questions. And I think that's an essential part of how all of this works. So that first point is to shift what we are expecting from how it relates to us to how it reveals and invites questions about, even hard questions about, what God is doing in the world. But what makes a parable distinct from a simple comparison or an analogy is that rather than trying to condense meaning down by drawing from the quality of one thing in order to illuminate another thing, a parable does this other thing. It draws on a person's experiences with the same topic, on your experiences with the same topic, in order to expand your understanding of the subject. When we say, to, to like use an example to make this clearer, when we say that somebody is as stubborn as a mule, we're taking one thing about mules, right? We're taking that they are hard to make move, which is a thing we're all mostly going on assumptions about at this point in history, right? Like, I don't know how many of you personally try to move a mule from a place to another, but you're probably still like under the assumption that it's difficult. You're taking that one quality of mules, and you're using that one quality in order to say about somebody else that they're being difficult, that they're being stubborn. And we don't ponder when we use that expression. We don't ponder what makes mules stubborn or how the hearts of men are shaped by the same instincts as the hearts of donkeys. Like We don't think about all that. The comparison isn't meant to deepen what we're talking about. It's meant to clarify what we're talking about. But parables don't work like that. So the second rule, I think, for reading a parable is this. When you're reading a parable, your job is to look for more and not less. And this, I think, is where the wedding ring comes back into play. What is the meaning of a thing? Is that meaning singular? Is it fixed? When we hear parables, Jesus is giving us a window into how God's kingdom works. He's giving us a window into who God is giving us a window into the heart of all things. But a window isn't the same thing as a picture. What's in a window is alive. What's in a window is changing. It's fresh each time you look at it with more to see, more to consider. And that doesn't mean that there's nothing fixed or concrete about windows, right? The window in my living room isn't sometimes facing a pond and then other times facing a mountain and then other times facing an ocean, right? It's the same view every day. But what's in that view is shifting, right? What I see there is shifting. I think in the same way a parable is this view into God's kingdom, but at the same time, the way that my window never reveals the same scene twice, not just the parable, the light in the window is different, right? The light outside, the weather changes, 
Every time I look out of it, I'm not trying to bottle up everything that's outside my house and lock it into place and be like, that's it, that's the outside world through my window, I'm done with it. Instead, what I'm doing when I look out the window is I'm getting a deeper and a fuller understanding of the world outside. And in the same way, the change in the meaning of a parable, the questions that come from it over time as you look out that window over and over again, they're not supposed to be making, that doesn't make it, the fact that it's changing doesn't make it faulty or make it incomplete or to make it insufficient as a kind of teaching. What it's supposed to be doing is making it richer, making it richer. So what is the complexity and the richness here? This is the question. And the problem is, that's a really hard thing for me to stand up here and teach. I can tell you what richness there is for me today. Maybe that can help you see something new. Or maybe you're seeing this for the first time, and that's a whole separate experience altogether. Or maybe you are the one with something new to see, something new to say. Maybe you're the one with the right ears to hear or the eyes to see this week. I think when we stop and think about this truth of how Scripture works and how parables work, we realize pretty quickly why it is that we need each other. This teaching time each week, I don't know what you're bringing into this each week when we do this, but what I'm telling you is this teaching time each week can't be this kind of cliff notes of the Bible for you. That can't be what this is. It has to be a time when all of us, me, you, and all of us, are stretched and when we encounter more of the mystery instead of less. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, when I was growing up, a guest preacher came to visit my little Baptist church. And he taught on this same parable, as a matter of fact. And in the end, this is what he took away from it and what he shared with us. He said that your salvation is not secured, and you have to keep working for it. If you think that a prayer and a dunk and a baptismal when you were seven years old is going to guarantee you a spot in heaven, then you are a seed that has fallen on the wrong sort of soil. And he looked at the birds which came to eat the seed, and he said that the point of that part of the parable was that these were temptations to stray. And he looked at the seed that quickly withered, and he said that was us if we didn't keep to spiritual disciplines like prayer and reading our Bible. And let me tell you, like little nine-year-old me remembers now how ballistic my church went about this guy's guest preaching. It was a key part of our church's doctrine that once a person was saved, they were saved forever. You might have even heard that at some point in your, in your journey, right? Once saved, always saved. And so after this guy gave this guest sermon, there was a meeting. Actually, the leaders of the church called this meeting and several folks quoted scripture to the point about how this man was wrong, how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And then the man was called back the next day, and he was called back not to teach, but because my church wanted to formally rebuke him as a heretic. And he showed up, and we did that. And there was this whole emergency service even after that in order to clean up all of the wrong things that we've been taught about the parable. I know why all this stuff happened. And I also know, truly, that guarding the doctrines of our faith is important. But i got to tell you, like the more I reflect on that little story, as I was thinking about it this past week, the whole thing leaves a real bad taste in my mouth. 
can't help but feel like my church was putting what we already felt sure of in front of something that might have pushed us or challenged us or convicted us. And as I look back on that, what I think is that it made my church's faith, it made my faith feel brittle, feel really brittle. Both in the sense that we like refused to listen to somebody that we disagreed with, and also in the sense that the man who spoke to us, who, who I also believe was sincere in his faith, as I think back on it, that, that man worked so hard to say that this one thing, which ultimately was a thing that got tangled up in his own beliefs about predestination and a bunch of other stuff, that this one thing was the only reason that Jesus shared the parable in the first place, that he had solved it, he cracked the riddle, and this was the point. I think to have ears to hear we must look for what God is revealing over what we want to see revealed. And we must trust that a story's meaning can be rich, can be varied, and even changing as our perspective of it changes. God is speaking, and sometimes his words take root, sometimes they don't. But when they do, what the story's saying is that the kingdom comes. The parable of the sower makes us wrestle, but we're richer for that wrestling, I think. We grow from it. Which in the end is exactly how the parable says things work. When we are planted, when we are planted in a place that is deep, and when we reach down into the difficulty of things, we begin to flourish. Shallow understandings are the things that wither or snatched away. Emotionalism and sensationalism don't endure. The kingdom of God is a place where seeds scattered in dark places, even seeds that seem to be far from the path, can yet take root and be nourished. And so this week, I want us to hear more than a single lesson or a takeaway. And I want us to consider the ways that we listen are we hoping to know a thing more, or are we hoping to simply know more things? What kind of soil are you? What kind of soil is your heart? And are you content with your answer to that question?